The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, it's not our normal practice as a church to spend a Sunday afternoon exploring church history. Um, It's our conviction at Baltimore Bible Church that uh, the exposition of Scripture should be the most central and primary aspect of every service, and uh, today's going to be no different. Uh, But as a church, it's also been our practice uh, to set aside uh, the last Sunday in October uh, to celebrate and to remember uh, the restoration of the centrality of the Scriptures to the church. Uh, There's a reason why every Sunday I can say, uh, open your copy of God's Word, or let's turn in our Bibles too, or why don't you follow with me as I read? There's a reason that that makes sense. That that doesn't sound foreign to your ears because we do have copies of God's Word available to us. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, uh, the best-selling book of all time is still the Christian Bible. It's impossible to know exactly how many copies have been printed printed in the roughly 1,500 years since its first mechanical printing, but uh, research conducted by the British and Foreign Bible Society in 2021 suggests that the total number probably lies somewhere between five and seven billion copies of God's Word. Five to seven billion copies. And then if you add to that the number of the availability of Bibles on our internet, you know, through the smartphones and tablets and computers, you add to that that number, you you have everywhere you have a signal, you have a Bible, right? Everywhere you have a signal, you have a Bible. I mean, can you hear me now, right? The Bible is everywhere, and it's not a foreign language for me to say, open your Bible, because it's not in a foreign language for you. For, for those of us who are English speakers, it's not a foreign language to us. You're not reading in Principio, Crie, Vit, Deus, Column, Et, Terum. You're reading, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's a reason why you're reading that. And we often take the Word of God in English for granted, but if we were to do that we would be failing to recognize the special providence of God and his faithful orchestration of all things in history to have the Bible that lays in your lap to be there. There's something that God has done to place that Bible in your hands, on your lap, and what most of us carry in our pockets would have been a death sentence 600 years ago. In 1401, the English parliament passed what they called the De Heretico Comburendo, which was the law for the burning of heretics alive at the stake. And who were considered the heretics? Anybody that had a Bible in English. Then in 1408, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, created the Constitutions of Oxford, which said, it is a dangerous thing to translate the text of Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another, for in the translation, the same sense is not always easily kept, We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter, by his own authority, translate any text of Scripture into English or any other tongue, and that no man can read any such book in part or in whole, which means that you could be burned alive 
by the Catholic Church for simply reading your Bible in English. For being here today, you'd be burned alive at the stake. Uh, one account by a man named John Bale, he said as a boy at uh, the age of 11, he watched the burning of a young man in Norwich for possessing the Lord's Prayer in English. John Fox, in his Fox's books, Book of Martyrs, records that seven followers of John Wycliffe, uh, who translated the scriptures by hand from Latin into English, and his followers, that his followers were burned in 1519 for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, was enough for the church to light the torch. But there were men and women who believed that it was worth the risk to have the Bibles given to us in English. There were men and women who, were, who believed it was worth the risk. And today we're going to take a look at a primary example of a man who believed it was worth the risk to translate the Bible into English. But before we get to the life of William Tyndale, would you open your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Psalms? We're going to take a look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And if you look at the title for this psalm in your Bible, if you have titles above the, uh, the chapters uh, in your Bibles or underneath the, the chapters in your Bible, you'll see that this is a, a psalm that was written by David, you know, for the choir director, a psalm of David. And there's no indication as to when in his life that David wrote this psalm, uh, but we do know that it was used for, uh, with regularity uh, for the worship of ancient Israel. And that's why you have that title, For the Choir Director, or To the Chief Musician. And in most of your Bibles, you have it there, and it's indicating that this psalm was used for corporate worship. And one of the ways that you could divide this psalm, this psalm is a, a, a psalm that speaks about the revelation of, of God, and one of the ways that you could divide up this psalm is by looking at the, the specific ways that God reveals himself throughout this text. In uh, verses 1 through 6, we see that God reveals himself by the witness of creation. If you look at verse 1, it says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So, so we see that the God reveals himself in the work of creation. You could call it God's signature in the skies. He's revealing himself in just what you see above you. In verses 7 to 12, uh, we witness the, uh, the, the witness of God in the scriptures, and there's six synonyms or descriptions of uh, the word of God in Psalm 19. The scriptures are called the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. We see that in verses 7 through 12, and we'll take a look at that more specifically. And then finally, we see the, the witness of God in the soul in verses 12 to 14. And here you have the conviction that's brought on the heart when we realize that we're in violation of a God who is so great, who has revealed himself. Look at verse 12. It says, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. So, so what I call this is uh, the signature of God in the skies, the signature of God in the scriptures, and the signatures of, uh, signature of God in the soul that God makes himself revealed to us even individually. It's, it's the conviction of God. Like, like, who can discern his errors? I, I don't even know how many times I've violated such a God. So, so God makes himself known even within the souls of, of people. And as valuable as the witness of God is in the, the sky or, you know, even the, the conviction of God in the soul, there's, there's words that are connected to God's revelation. There, there's specific 
propositional truth that's connected to the revelation of God. And these are words that speak with an even greater power, superiority, strength, authority. And like the sun, they they pierce everywhere. They detect everything. And it's the words that are given to us in Scripture. And as you begin to take a look at all that Scripture claims about itself, the, the majesty of God's revelation, you know, you quickly realize that there's nothing like this. There's nothing like the Word of God. Look at verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. What we have in Scripture is all that we need for life. It's sufficient. It's sufficient for all that we need. Let me just give you a couple definitions for sufficiency that I think are are helpful. Uh, Grudem, in his systematic theology, says, Scripture contains all the words of God that he intended his people to have at each stage of history, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, for obeying him perfectly. have everything that we need. McCune, in his theology, says that the Bible is a finished and complete revelation, entirely sufficient for its divinely intended purpose. It need not be supplemented by reason, experience, tradition, or other religions or anything else. It does not wait to be sufficient until it encounters the individual, nor does it cease to be sufficient when rejected or ignored by the individual. It doesn't matter if you accept it or reject it, it's still the Word of God. You're not going to change what it is. Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men." We don't look to new revelations out there, somebody saying, hey, I'm the new prophet, I'm the apostle, I've got a word for you, I've got a prophecy for you, God showed me this last night in a dream and it's for you. That's not where we look for the revelation of God. And we don't look to the traditions of men, what's been passed down from one generation to the next as if uh, there's another uh, uh, body of truth that's just as equal with the word of God. The, the, the word of God is, is in a class all by itself. Because God is in a class all by himself, right? So whatever you need for life, for godliness, for pleasing him, it's all contained in the word of God. The truth about him is here. The truth about salvation is here. If you need guidance, instruction for your life, it's here. Whatever God wants you to believe, it's here. Whatever God wants you to practice, it's here. I don't know if you remember that uh, old Ragu commercial. You know, it's in there, it's in there, it's in there. Like everything that you need is here. Everything you need for your life is here. There's absolutely nothing that is necessary for your Christian life that you will not find in Scripture. We don't need to seek some new revelation, traditions for decisions that we make. Scripture is a sufficient guide for the believer. But let's see what David said about it. Let's see what David says. I'll start just at verse verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Why don't you bow your heads with me forward to prayer? Heavenly Father, we uh, do come before you, uh, Lord, and we're uh, grateful for this, your word. 
Now, Father, we pray that as we walk through this section of Scripture, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Now, Father, I pray that you'd give us a greater confidence in what we have and a greater appreciation for that which you've given to us. Father, we have a faithful word, a word that comes from you. May you be honored and glorified in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, David uses six titles for the law of God. And the first is found in verse 7, that the law of the Lord is perfect. That word for law is Torah in Hebrew. It refers to teaching, instruction from God. You know, actually uh, uh, comes from a root word that means to point out that God points things out to us in his word. And the other five titles are synonymous with this law of God and give further descriptions of it. In verse 7, it's called the testimony because it bears witness to God. In verse 8, it's called the precepts or the statutes, uh, which are rules, guidelines to be followed. It's also called the commandments in verse 8, which demonstrates the authority that God's word has. In verse 9, it's called the, the fear of the Lord because that's the effect it should have on those who hear it, that, that we have a fear for God because of what he's communicated to us. And then finally, it's called the judgments of God in verse 9. And that word could also be translated as ordinances or you know, points to the law being that which is determined by God. This is what God has said. They reveal what he has decided, his judgments about everything. And what struck me about this section is that it doesn't focus so much on what the law of God reveals. It really focuses more attention on the value of this word for us. So if we were to ask David, you know, what's the value of the revelation, the witness of God in the skies? He would say that the, the value of that is that it tells you the glory of God. There's a God and he's glorious. It, it, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. You know, you, you, you can't open your eyes and look at a sunset, a sunrise. You can't look at the clouds floating overhead. You can't look at the, the sun, you know, kind of, you know, passing by in the sky and not come to the conclusion that there is a God. And that, that's from scripture. It tells you of the glory of God. So that it doesn't matter what time you live in, what place you live in, what language you speak, everybody can recognize the witness of God that's everywhere, pierces everywhere. Everybody knows that there's a God. That's what Romans chapter 1 says. But what do we do? We, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness because we don't want to acknowledge God. We know that God exists. You know, somewhere deep back in the recesses of your mind, you know that there's a God. And you know that you have an accountability to him. But you don't want to acknowledge that. You, you don't want to deal with that. Because if I acknowledge that there's a God, I might have to change some things. I might have to redirect some things. I might actually have to bow my knee to this God. You don't want to acknowledge that, so what do you do? Oh, there's no God. There's not enough proof of God. Can, can you give me one proof of God? Open your eyes. <laughs> you want proof of God, just open your eyes and look around. Everything is a proof for God. But men don't want to acknowledge God because if they did, they would have to glorify him. They'd have to say that somebody else is above me, that I'm accountable to the one who's made me. It's he who has made us, not we ourselves. I'm accountable to this God. Men don't want to acknowledge that, so they don't even want to look up. They don't want to open their eyes and put two and two together. But that's the, the witness of the skies. There's a God, he's glorious. But then when you say, well, what's the, what's the value of the special revelation, David? Oh, you want to talk about special revelation? You want to talk about what God has written? This is what restores the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It warns God's servant. It brings great reward. Do you see all the benefits of the word of God? 
The general revelation lets you know that there's a God. Special revelation lets you know how can I have a relationship with him. You understand? Special revelation connects you to this great God. But let's take a look at the, the benefits of the word. Uh, number one in verse seven, it says it restores the soul or converts the soul. The soul. It literally means to, to turn us back. The scriptures turn us toward God. And that begins at salvation, at the point of conversion. Your conversion is a product of the word of God. Did you know that? 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul reminds Timothy that from childhood, you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. Our salvation is a product of the word of God. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. You've been born again by the word. Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. This is how I was saved. The message of scripture came to my heart and transformed my life. It's the word of God that transforms me. It turned me towards God. And that keeps turning us towards God for the rest of our life. You know, John 17, 17, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. It's God's word that continues to sanctify us, to draw us to himself. So it's the word of God that converts the soul. Number two, the word of God makes wise the simple. Look at the second half of verse seven. Testimony of the Lord ashore, making wise the simple. The word that's used for simple is the person who doesn't have discernment. It's actually a word in Hebrew uh, that was used for somebody who's an open door. You just, just open, open the door. You know, you, you tell your, your children, you know, like if you ever had to leave the house, you know, make sure you don't open the door. Why? Because they don't have the discernment to know who should I let in and who should I keep out. So don't even open the door. That, that word in Hebrew for somebody who, who's simple, who lacks discernment, is somebody who just opens the door. Anything can come in. Truth can come in. Error can come in. Danger can come in. I mean, hey, we just got an open door policy here. You know, when, when people say, you know, uh, you're so closed-minded. Thank you. <laughs> you know, if, if I open my, my mind too, 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 too wide, you know, anything can come in. Yeah, I, I, I am narrow. You know, the, the way is narrow. The path is narrow. The least to eternal life. I don't want to have an open mind to everything. So, so yes, I don't want to just be open. You know, it was used in Proverbs 7 for the young man who was naive and lacked sense. Simple. But what does the word of God do for the simple person? Where do simple people go? People who want discernment. I, I want to know the difference between right and wrong. I want to know which way I should go. Open up your Bible. This will help you. This will show you. Psalm 119, verse 130, the unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. In verse 99, I have more insight than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Verse 100, I have more understanding than the aged because I have observed your precepts. You want to be able to discern right and wrong? You know, we have a world today of educated fools. Educated fools. Fools with PhDs that don't know the difference between a man and a woman. Are you kidding me? You had to go to school to learn that? Like, I, I knew better by reading my Bible. It's, it's the word of God that gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. You, you, you want to you know who a, you know, give me a, a room full of PhDs and give me a child that knows that the Bible is the word of God and I'll tell you who has more wisdom. 
It's the word of God that gives wisdom. The scriptures are valuable for wisdom. Number three, they rejoice the heart. In verse eight, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Where, where, where do you go for joy? You know, do you go to the bottom of, a, bottom of a bottle for joy? Do you go to the arms of a lover for joy? Do you go to the next party for joy? My next question would be, well, where do you go when that leaves you empty? Because it's going to leave you empty. There's going to come a time when the, the, the temporary kind of happiness, excitement is just going to fade away, and you're left alone by yourself wondering, where has the joy gone? Because you never really had it. You never really had it. It's, it's God that gives us true joy. The world is going to, it's, it's like a, a vapor, right? Life is like a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow, and the joys are the same way. You know, the Bible says, you know, don't, don't make a, you know, don't trust in riches because, you know, your, your, your pockets will make holes in themselves, right? Riches will fly away from you. You can't, you can't put your hope in this stuff. You can't put your hope in this life. Psalm 119 verse 16 says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 97, oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation all the day. Verse 111, thy testimonies are my heritage, my, my joy forever. Yes, they are the joy of my heart. I love Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. Thy words were found and I ate them and thy words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name. And I love John 15, 11. It says, these things I have spoken to you. I've given you my word. These things I've spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. You, you believe what I have to say, you will have fullness of joy. This is what, what, what Jesus promises us. We can experience deep, abiding joy that remains regardless of what the circumstances may present to us. And, and we, we, we run into very difficult circumstances, don't we? I know I do. <laughs> I don't know about you. I run into difficult circumstances. I remember back in uh, 2000, I remember receiving the news that my father had passed away. And the, the first thing that I did was grab my Bible. Actually, I was reading Psalm 119 when I received the news that my father passed away. And the, the next thing that I did was read the next verse. <laughs> That's what I did. Re, read the next verse because where else am I going to go? What, what else do you do? I, I feel, like, seriously, I feel sorry for the people that don't have a God that they can turn to in difficulty. Where do you go? There's no hope just looking to people in this life. People are going to let you down. There's no hope just looking to yourself because you will let yourself down. There's only one who's absolutely faithful and immutable. Where, where do you go? God's word is sufficient. People say, you know, uh, you know, you treat the Bible like a crutch. You know, you Christians, you treat Bible, the Bible like a crutch. I told them, I don't, I don't treat it like a crutch. I treat it like a stretcher. <laughs> it's, a, it's a stretcher. And, and when I can't hobble around it, the Bible carries me. Where, where do you go when you can't hobble around anymore, right? I go to the Bible. I, I just like, hey, lean back. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, there's nothing else I can do. Trust in the Lord. No, it's a stretcher. It carries me. When I'm flat on my back, it carries me. God's word is sufficient. Restores the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart. 
It enlightens the eyes. Look at verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's our, our sight that keeps us from stumbling around, harming ourselves. But that sight is useless if we're in the dark. We need light. We need light. And the word of God is light. Psalm 119, verse 105, you probably memorized it, right? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's what God's word is. It provides me light. It shows me the way. It shows me the path. This is the direction to go. You know, the lights are on. Thy word is a lamp. Psalm 119, verse 130, the entrance of thy word gives light. God's word brings clarity. And shame on anybody who treats the Bible as if it's some mystery that can only be unlocked by some kind of Bible code or trained clergy or, you know, whatever else. You know, if your church teaches you that, that you need to come to them because they alone have the understanding, if you're part of a, you know, some kind of religion out there and they say, we, we alone know the, know, know the truth and it's not in the Bible, you need to run for your life. You need to run for your life. There's people out there that, that teach an unhealthy dependence on them as the teachers rather than the scriptures as the teachers. Jehovah's Witnesses, they actually teach this. This is found in some of their documents. They say that the, the lights, you know, the light of understanding will grow dim for those that don't constantly feed on our magazines. It's what they say. You know, yeah, you can have the Bible, but the lights will grow dim unless you subscribe to the Watchtower and the Awake and whatever else. You know, the lights will go dim. And what are they saying about the Bible then? Oh, the Bible is dim. You know, we're the light. You subscribe to us, you know, let you know, two of us knock on your door and come in and then you'll have the light. But the Bible, you just, you just have the Bible. I mean, we feel sorry for you. As if they alone have the words of life. Mormons believe that their apostles hold the true meaning of Scripture. Roman Catholicism, as recently as the Second Vatican Council, which met in 1962 to 65, concluded that all that pertains to the form by which Scripture is explained is subject ultimately to the judgment of the church. Referring to the leaders of the church. Like, like we are the ones that hold the keys to understanding of truth. You know, loose the scriptures and let them speak. The, the, the Bible is sufficient to, to speak to us. It also warns us. Warns us. Look at verse, verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. We're, we're warned by the word of God. You know, Old Testament times, uh, cities were protected by a watchman. They'd station a watchman on the, the top of a wall. He would look out to make sure there's no enemies approaching. And if he saw an enemy approaching, he'd ring the alarm, sound the alarm, blow the horn. Hey, there's a danger is approaching. You know, he'd warn everybody on the inside. Ezekiel 3.17 says the Lord used the watchman. uh, The Lord uses this watchman as an illustration of what Ezekiel was to be. And in verse 17, he says, son of man, I've appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live. The wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. You know, the, the prophet was, was positioned to warn the people. Warn them. Let them know they're headed for danger. You know, don't break God's commands. Why? Because you're, you're headed for danger if you do that. The Bible warns us about where to go, where not to go, and what will happen if we disobey the Lord. It's discipline for the believer you know, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and it's damnation for the unbeliever. And we warn unbelievers. 
You're, you're heading to hell. You know, you, they don't want to hear that. You know, they, they think of it as unloving, uncaring. But there's nothing that's more caring that you can do but warn somebody about the judgment to come. If I see an enemy approaching a city to attack it and I don't say anything because, you know, I might hurt your feelings by letting you know that there's an enemy coming, I don't, I don't have love for you. I don't care about you. You know, so what do we do? We warn people. We use the word of God and say that the soul that sins shall surely die. That, that's what we do. We warn people about the judgment to come. And if you're here and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, I want to warn you. that There's coming a time when you're going to stand before the Lord and there's going to be nobody there in your defense. Jesus Christ is the only advocate. Do you know that? He's the only one that you can turn to that, that would, have, would plead for you. And it's his, his blood, his life that he gave up on the cross that, that stands as the, the advocation for us. That, that, Father, I've died for this one. His sins have been covered. My righteousness is applied to his life. He can be received. I can present him before you as faultless, blameless, without reproach, because he's trusted in me as a savior. That's what we need. Without that, you, you're, you're heading for judgment, and there's nothing that you can do. There's no escape. We, we warn people about the judgment to come. And we're also brought great reward. And in the verse 11, it says, in keeping them, there is great reward. So the word of God doesn't just warn us about judgment to come, what happens when you disobey, but it also offers like this, this wonderful promise reward if you do obey. Look, look at all the blessings that are found in obedience. You know, Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. If, if we honor the Lord, if we're faithful to the Lord, there's reward on the other side. And we can, we can find all of that by looking at Scripture. Scripture lets us know how to, how to receive reward on the other side. Is there any question about the sufficiency, the, the power, the value of the Word of God? Restores the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, warns God's servant, brings great reward. And because of this, it's worth the risk to get this for yourself, and it's worth the risk to give this away to others. And for the rest of the time that we have left, I want to introduce you to a, a brother who went before us, who understood the risk that was required and worth it for the Word of God to get into the hands of the English language. So we're going to take a look at the life of William Tyndale, all right? William Tyndale was born into the English context where you could be burned alive like we spoke about earlier. You could be burned alive by the Catholic Church for simply reading the Bible in English, teaching your children the Lord's Prayer, possessing a copy of the Word of God in English. So he was born into this context uh, in the early 1490s, maybe somewhere around 1493 to 1495. Roughly 70 years before Tyndale was born, the Catholic Church was digging up the bones of the first man who dared to translate the Bible into English, John Wycliffe, on December 9th, uh, 1427, it was ordered that Wycliffe's body, which is already in the grave for 43 years, be dug up out of the grave so it could be publicly burnt and its ashes disposed of so that no trace of him could ever be found. And why did they do that? 
because they considered Wycliffe's writings and the translation of the scriptures to be heretical. John Wycliffe believed that the Bible was intended for the common people to read, to understand, and he began the work that was carried on by his followers of translating the Bible into English. But he translated it from the Latin Vulgate, okay? And it was a long and tedious process for Wycliffe because he did this all by hand. There was no printing press during his day. Uh, Today, over 250 manuscripts of Wycliffe's Bibles have been found, survived, but uh, each of those Bibles had to be painstakingly copied by hand. And Wycliffe used what he had to make the Scriptures available. You know, he didn't have the benefit of the Greek, the Hebrew languages, so he used the Latin, you know, to translate the Bible into English for the people of, of God. He used what he had. And the people that followed Wycliffe were known as the Bible men, the poor priests, or the lollards. They called them lollards because it was a word that meant mumblers, tongue waggers. You know, these guys are just out there mumbling, wagging their tongues. They don't know what they're talking about. And for a time, they filled England with their their preaching, carried a few pages of Wycliffe's Bible with them, just a few leaves of his Bible, went around, preached sermons, and, and that was really all that was known of the English Bible Uh, before Tyndale. And those who carried these pages were hunted down, burned alive for the crime of carrying a concealed weapon, carrying the Bible. And in this context, William Tyndale was born early 1490s in a rural area of uh, Gloucestershire uh, near the Welsh border of the Severn, uh, near the Severn River as well. Uh, We don't know much about his early years, but we do know uh, that his parents were well off enough to send him to college. And uh, at the age of 12, Tyndale entered into Magdalen Hall of Oxford University, the Magdalen Hall of Oxford University, uh, which was more like a a preparatory school, you know, to prepare him for future studies. Uh, But even very early on, he demonstrated a great love and discipline, a natural ability for learning. Uh, After he graduated with a bachelor's at the age of 18, he began to pursue a master's degree, but he expressed his great disappointment that while he studied rhetoric and logic and philosophy, that he was shielded from the Bible. Shielded from the Bible. Why can't I read the Bible? You know, even, even a, a theology. Why, why can't I study theology? You know, I'm shielded from these things that are the most important. But it's worth the risk. The Bible is worth the risk of searching it out. It's worth the risk of searching it out. He's quoted as saying, In universities they've ordained that no man shall look on the Scriptures until he be nursed on heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with the false principles with which he is clean shut out of understanding the scriptures. The scriptures are locked up with false expositions and false principles of natural philosophy. It's like it's shielded from us. You give us all your philosophy and learning and you don't give us the Bible. In July of 1515, he graduated with a master's of arts degree as a trained linguist. He went on to pursue a doctorate at Cambridge University in 1519. And again, you have to place him in the context, in this historical context, 1519, that's when he's going to Cambridge. What happened two years earlier in Germany? Martin Luther nailed his 95 points of contention against the Roman Catholic Church, the 95 Theses. And this is spreading like wildfire during this time. So 1519, he's in college, he's studying. He wants to get his hands on the Bible. People are keeping it from him. And then he hears about this revolution going on in Germany where everybody's attaching themselves to the Word of God, like the Word of God is is starting to to explode. The the light of the Word of God is is starting to spread. So so this is what is going on during his day. 
Martin Luther dropped like a bomb on the nation of Germany, nailing his 95 theses, and uh, everybody in the halls of Cambridge, around the lunch table, in the hallways, they're talking about what's going on in Germany. This, this, this reformation, what do you think about these ideas that are coming out of Germany? Could it be true that salvation is only by grace through faith because of Christ and it's not connected to the Pope, to the Mass, to the Catholic Church? Could it be true? Why aren't they giving the Bible to us? Why are they hiding the truth of God's word from us? What don't they want us to know? That's what's being discussed in the halls of Cambridge. So Tyndale was exposed to reform, the reformed Protestant movement that was already underway. And in 1520, uh, one year after Tyndale showed up at Cambridge, there was a small group of scholars who began to meet to discuss these ideas regularly at a tavern called the White Horse Inn. And they became known as Little Germany. You know, the, the people who are, you know, kind of like hearing stuff going on in Germany, and now they're bringing it back and discussing all these ideas. They're called Little Germany. And there were people in this group like Robert Barnes, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, Miles Coverdale, Thomas Cranmer, Thomas Bilney, and many believe that even William Tyndale was a part of this, this group discussing these ideas together. And from this group, uh, two of these men became archbishops, seven became bishops, and eight of them were martyred for their faith. But not only did they meet to discuss the Reformation, they also met to discuss this recently published Greek New Testament that was compiled by a man by the name of Erasmus, a Dutch scholar, humanist, you know, Renaissance humanist. Erasmus wasn't a radical reformer, uh, but he did have a desire that people would read the scriptures. He did have that desire, and he's quoted as saying, Christ wishes his mysteries published as widely as possible. I would wish even all women read the gospel, the epistles of St. Paul. I wish that they were translated into all languages of all Christian people, that they might be read and known not merely by the Scotch and the Irish, but even by the Turks, the Saracens. I, I wish that the husbandmen might sing parts of them at the plow. Keep, keep that in mind. I wish that the husbandmen might sing them at the plow. You know, the, the person pushing the plow would be reciting scripture. I wish that that would happen. That the weaver may warble them at his shuttle, that the traveler may with the, their narratives beguile the weariness of the way. It's like, you know, as I'm on the way, I'm getting tired of the journey. Let's talk about Scripture. Let's recite Scripture together. So the primary, uh, Erasmus did have a desire that everybody would read the Scriptures, but when he compiled his Greek New Testament, that wasn't the goal of it. When he put his Greek New Testament together, he compiled his Greek New Testament in order to have a better Latin translation. That's actually why he did it. So it was for the clergy, you know, for the learned. That's why he produced this Greek New Testament and a better Latin translation. But reformers like Tyndale and Luther saw this as the opportunity to bring the word of God straight from the original languages into the language of their people. It's been said that Erasmus laid the egg and Luther hatched it. <laughs> you know, so it's like Erasmus got the, the New Testament, you know, Greek out and uh, didn't take it far enough. He just brought it into the Latin, and Luther wanted to bring it into the hands of the people. Same thing that Tyndale wanted to do. I want the people to understand the Word of God in their own language. So in 1521, Tyndale steps away from Cambridge in order to have more time with his Greek New Testament to ponder the truths of the Reformation. He took a job as a tutor, a private chaplain for a family, the Walsh family who lived in uh, Gloucestershire, uh, this was a wealthy family. They entertained officials from the Roman Catholic Church. And when the local priests would come to dinner, Tyndale 
would find himself a seat at the table so he could ask some questions. And just to give you an idea of what the clergy were like in Gloucestershire where uh, he was living, there was a report by a bishop named Hooper of the clergy of his, his day. Listen to what he says. Negligence and ungodly behavior of the monasteries of Gloucestershire, inhospitable, non-resident, inefficient, drunken and evil living was found in every deanery. Furthermore, in a small town, it was recorded that nine clergy did not know how many commandments there were. 33 did not know where they appeared in the Bible. 168 could not repeat them, could not repeat the Ten Commandments. 39 did not know where the Lord's Prayer was in the Bible. And 34 did not know who the author of the Lord's Prayer was. If, if you're going to become an elder here... Uh, yeah, you're, you're going to have to know some of this stuff, just, just to put that out there, okay? On one occasion, when he was in a debate with the priest over the importance of having the scriptures in the common language, the priest responded, listen to this, we had better be without God's law than the Pope's. Like, it's better to be without God's law than without the Pope's law. And Tyndale replied, which is probably his most famous quote, I defy the Pope and all his laws, if God spare my life before many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more scripture than you do. Where do you think he, what do you think he was reading? He's reading his Greek New Testament. He's reading Erasmus. He's hearing what Erasmus is saying. Like, we need to get this word out. Erasmus isn't going far enough. We need to get this into the hands of the people. And he became convinced that it was impossible to establish a church without the truth of scripture being in the mother tongue. 1523, he traveled to London to seek the official authorization from the Bishop of London, a bishop by the name of Toonstall, to produce a sanctioned translation of the Bible. He sought permission first, but he was met with great resistance to the English text. England was fearful that if they had a Bible, that they would become like Germany. And Germany was experiencing a peasant's revolt because people are starting to figure out, we've been lied to. And finally, we get the word of God in our language, and we can see that we've been lied to. The priest doesn't even know what he's talking about. So there's a revolt that happened in Germany, and England is saying, we don't want no parts of that. We want to keep our people in the dark about what the scripture says. So Tyndale, 1524, at the age of 30, left his home, left his family, headed to Germany without the king's permission, lived as a fugitive under a self-imposed exile, and he began to do his work on the translation of the Bible into English. The Bible is worth the risk of defying the law. It's worth the risk of defying the law. Tyndale arrived in Hamburg, Germany in 1524. He also journeyed to Wittenberg, where the first sparks of the Reformation flew. That's where Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, and he began work on the translation. He traveled to Cologne, Germany, which was the largest city in Germany, to find a printer, uh, and hide himself in the large city in the crowd. But there, was, there were a couple of people who worked for the printer who agreed to help the printer with his work, and they became familiar with what Tyndale was up to, that he was you know, trying to publish you know, an English translation of the Bible. And, he said, and, and they, they, they were out at a bar and became drunk, and while they're drunk, they're intoxicated, and they spoke openly about the work of Tyndale. And let people know around them that, you know, the, the king of England's going to get a translation in English whether he wants it or not, because Tyndale's working on it. And Tyndale heard in God's providence, who's tipped off, that, you know, they were going to come and raid the, the print shop. So he quickly ran to the print shop and gathered up all the leaves of his translation and escaped under the cover of night. 
He fled down the Rhine River, managed to get to Worms, Germany, which should ring a bell for, for you that remember Martin Luther's story, uh, because that's where uh, he was to stand trial for uh, his writings. So he goes to Worms, Germany, and in Worms, he found a, a city that was sympathetic to the cause of the Reformation, and Tyndale completed the first mechanically printed translation of the Bible into English from the original Greek. In 1526, the leaves of thousands of Bibles were flooding in bales of cotton, you know, secretly in bales of cotton, into England, and German Lutherans were receiving these shipments and assembling these Bibles, the leaves of these Bibles, you know, to pass them out and to, to, shell, uh, to sell them. They, they sold them for three shillings and two pence, which was an average week's wage and affordable price for most people. Merchants, students, sailors, tailors, weavers, bricklayers, plowboys started to become exposed to the Word of God. 1526, the Archbishop of Canterbury got wind of what was going on. He confiscated every Bible he could get his hands on. At St. Paul's Cross in London, Bishop Toonstall preached a sermon against Tyndale and burned 3,000 copies of the Bible. 1527, the Archbishop of Canterbury came up with the plan to buy up all of Tyndale's Bibles, remove them from the market. So he bought as many Bibles as he could find, purchased the Bibles, you know, bright idea, but the money made its way back to Tyndale so that he could work on the second revision. <laughs> so so the, 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 what they, they did backfired on them. What they meant for evil, God meant for good, right? It's worth the risk of opposition. Having the Bible is worth the risk of opposition. Tyndale became a wanted man. Uh, soon the opponents of Tyndale made their way to Germany to search for him, bring him to justice. 1528, an English cardinal dispatched secret agents. I mean, the secret service is after Tyndale. I mean, there's like three different organizations that are all going after, after Tyndale. He's moving to various cities. And it's important to understand that Tyndale is not a rebel. He actually wrote a, a book on the obedience of the Christian man that uh, King Henry VIII read and said that every king needs to read this because he's actually talking about submission to the government. Yeah, we, we, we want to submit to the government. It's right to submit to the government, but not on this one. <laughs> not on this one. Not when it comes between me and obedience to God. Like this is where we cannot bow the knee. But Tyndale understood that, yes, you know, kings are in the Bible and they deserve some kind of submission. But Tyndale was violently opposed he had a particular enemy by the name of Sir Thomas More, who was an advisor to the king, a devout Roman Catholic who viciously and mercilessly attacked him. He launched a character assassination against Tyndale in a number of books. He wrote close to a million words against Tyndale. I don't think I have that much to say about anybody. <laughs> wrote close to a million words against Tyndale. I mean, imagine somebody hating you so much that they could come up with a million things to say. More wrote a dialogue concerning heresies. He wrote that Tyndale was the captain of all English heretics, a hellhound in the kennel of the devil, a new Judas worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, an idolater, a devil worshiper, a beast out of whose brutish, beastly mouth comes the filthy foam, the, the filthy foam of the word of God. He wrote nine books against Tyndale, filling more than a thousand pages, personally responsible for the execution of those who defied the pope or the king and those who supported Tyndale. Thomas More had Tyndale's closest friend, John Frith, arrested in London. He was tried by Thomas More, burned alive July 4th, 1531 at the age of 28. Richard Bayfield ran the, the ships that took Tyndale's books to England. 
He was betrayed, arrested, and more wrote in December 4th, 1531, that the monk and apostate was well and worthily burned. We've burned him. Three weeks later, the same end came to another man by the name of John Tewksbury. He was converted while reading Tyndale's works, was whipped in Moore's garden, had his brow squeezed with small ropes until blood came out of his eyes. Then he was sent to the tower where he was stretched out on a rack until he was lame, and then at last he was burned. All for reading that salvation came by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he rejoiced, Thomas More, this enemy of Tyndale, rejoiced that his victim was now in hell where Tyndale is likely to find him when they come together. This is the kind of hatred that existed for Tyndale. Ironically, Moore himself was executed because he got crossways with the king later on, so it's kind of he got hanged by his own gallows later on. But it was worth being opposed. It's also worth the risk of losing it all. 1529, Tyndale determined that there was too much pressure in the city of Worms and uh, Mar- Marburg where he was, so he traveled to Antwerp, a modern-day uh, city of, of Belgium, he completed the first five books of Moses. He, he learned Hebrew while on the run. This is, this is an incredible, incredible figure in church history. He learned Hebrew while on the run. But even here, uh, the danger was too great, so he boarded a ship to make his way to Hamburg, and he was caught up in a severe thunderstorm and lost all of his books and writings while he's traveling and was forced to start all over again. He lost it all. In uh, Hamburg, he was reunited with Miles Coverdale, who assisted Tyndale in his translation work, would eventually go on to produce his own translation of the Bible, the Coverdale Bible, if you've ever heard of that, in 1529. Five books of Moses were completed there, January of 1530. uh, The books of Moses began making their way to England. 1530, England decided to take a new approach, so Thomas Cromwell, an advisor to the king, commended a a friendly approach. You know, let's, let's go and try to make friends with Tyndale. So he commissioned this man by the name of Stephen Vaughan, uh, who was an English merchant sympathetic to the Reformed faith, uh, to go and meet up with Tyndale secretly. April of 1531, there was a secret meeting. They arranged for an Antwerp, and Vaughn tried to persuade Tyndale to come back to England. The king's changed his mind about you. He wants you on his side. He wants you with him. And Tyndale says, well, I'll go, under one condition, that the Bible translation work continues. I'll come back to England as long as the Bible is still going out. And Vaughn wrote that I find Tyndale always singing one note. I assure you, if, if it would stand with the king's most gracious pleasure to grant only a bare text of the scripture, Tyndale writes, to be put forth among the people, be it the translation of whatever person soever pleases his majesty, I shall immediately make faithful promise never to write more nor abide two days in these parts. After the same, but immediately repair unto his realm and there most humbly submit myself at the feet of his royal majesty. I'll give myself up as long as the word of God still goes out. I'll risk it all. And kind of reminds me of, of, of Paul. You know, when Paul said in Acts 20, you know, I'm bound in the spirit. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord. And that was Tyndale. He says, as long as the word goes out, I don't care what happens to me. As long as my ministry is fulfilled. And it didn't matter whether he died or not. A renewed hunt for Tyndale continued after he refused to come with the, the king. And, you know, the Lord kind of closed the lion's mouth for a period of time. It was also the worth, worth the risk of being vulnerable. 
1534, Tyndale moved into a home of uh, Thomas Ponce, or Points. Uh, he was a, a good friend, a loyal sympathizer. He had protection in his home so he could continue his work on translation. He was also introduced to a chaplain by the name of John Rogers, who became a loyal supporter and also later was martyred under Queen Mary I, who also became known as Bloody Mary. And it was Rogers who finished Tyndale's translation after Tyndale uh, died. His Bible is known as the Matthews Bible. He wrote it under a pseudonym, so you didn't know who wrote it. And in this home, uh, Tyndale uh, continued his work on revising the English Testament, New Testament. Uh, 6,000 copies of the second edition went out, sold within a month. And in addition to the revised New Testament, he continued to work on the Old Testament, Joshua through Second Chronicles. And back in England, they're still devising a plan, and this is where it all comes to an end. There was a man by the name of Henry Phillips who gambled away a large sum of money that belonged to his father that was given to him to pay a debt. He gambled it all away. And the Bishop of London heard about this man by the name of Henry Phillips and knew that this man is desperate enough to do the job for us. This is a guy who can get it done. So Phillips was offered a large sum of money to make up for what he lost of his father's estate. And the deal was that he would find Tyndale and become a Judas in order to bring Tyndale in. So Henry Phillips arrives in Antwerp in 1535. He made the contacts to find Tyndale. He followed the trail to Tyndale and uh, came to Tyndale as a friend. Like, I, I, I'm really a part of this reform movement. I want to know more about the movement. I'm here to support the movement. Points is the, 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 the house owner warned him about this new friend saying, I don't trust him. You know, where is he from? What is he about? What does he want? But Tyndale had this open heart. I, I just, if, if, if he's here to hear the gospel, I want to share it with him. If he's on our side, I, I, I want to have an open heart towards him. So Tyndale lowered his guard, and Steve Lawson says he became like a lamb led to the slaughter. On their way to dinner one evening, Tyndale and Phillips were entering a narrow alley outside of the property of the, the home where he resided, and Phillips had Tyndale walk ahead of him. You know, it was a narrow alley. They couldn't two walk together. So Phillips had Tyndale, no, brother, please go ahead. And he walked behind him, and he had two soldiers stationed on either side of the alley. And as Tyndale is walking down through the alley, behind him, Phillips is pointing him out, saying, this is the one. This is the one. It's like the, like the Judas kiss. This is the one. And the soldiers took Tyndale, apprehended him, and after 12 years as a fugitive, Tyndale was captured. When they went to the home of Tyndale, where Tyndale was, you know, translating, doing his translation work, uh, they couldn't find any of his translations, uh, likely because John Rogers gathered up all the manuscripts and hurried them off to hide them so that he could continue the work, and they found their way into the, the Matthews Bible, as I mentioned earlier. Tyndale was imprisoned. It was worth the, the risk of confinement. He was uh, guarded in a castle by an impossible moat, seven towers, three drawbridges, impenetrable walls. He was placed in a dungeon, faced cold winters. I mean, in the, the northern European you know, climate, you know, he's facing the, 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 the dark, damp, deserted cell in the winter. During the time of his confinement, he wrote a treatise called Faith Alone in God Justifies. He's warming his heart with the gospel while his body is shivering and freezing to death. It was the power of the gospel that warmed his soul. And during the winter of 1535, he wrote a final letter to the king of England. Listen to what he said. 
He says, I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will, I, I will request your, uh, that you will request your commissary to have kindness to, to send me for my goods of mine, which he has, a, of the goods of mine, which he has, a warmer cap. So he's like, you know, uh, he, he's taken my stuff. Can he just give it back to me while I'm here? Like a warmer cap? Because I suffer greatly from cold in the head. And I'm afflicted by perpetual discharge, which is much increased in the cell. A warmer coat also for this which I have is very thin. A piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts also are worn out. He has a woolen shirt if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on. He has a warmer nightcap. I also ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. Again, he's asking for his own stuff. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark, but most of all I beg, you know, besides all of this, if you can't give me any of that, this is what I want the most. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he would kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary. You know, some people might think that that's the torture, you know. You know, those of you who might have studied a little bit of Hebrew, it's like, hey, give me the Hebrew grammar. It's like, no. Uh, give me the Greek grammar, maybe, you know. But he says, no, this, this, to pass the time, my Greek, my, my Hebrew Bible, my Hebrew grammar, and my Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you desire, most, most desire, so only that it be for your salvation, the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been made concerning me to be carried out before the winter, if you're going to put me to death, I will be patient, abiding the will of God, to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct our heart. Amen. Reminds you a lot of uh, another person in Scripture, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul, he's like, hey, can you bring my cloak? Can you bring the parchments? Can you bring the books? In his last moments of life, he, he wants to warm himself by the reading of Scripture. He stayed in prison for 500 days. 500 days in solitary confinement, and we don't know if his requests were ever granted. August of 1536, Tyndale finally stood trial before his accusers. He was a, condemned as a heretic. During this public service, Tyndale would have been publicly excommunicated, stripped of his priesthood, and that's what would happen is they'd put a priestly robe on him, and then they'd rip it off. They'd place a piece of bread and wine in his hand, and then they'd strip it away from him. It was all a way to humiliate him. Force him to, they forced him to kneel, and then with a sharp knife or with glass, they scraped his hands to symbolize that he lost all of his privileges. It was a mockery reminiscent of the, the Lord's trial, mockery before Herod and Pilate, all a show for their own entertainment. And then he would be delivered over to the civil authorities for the death sentence. And it was worth the risk of death. It was worth death. The word of God was worthy of death. And on October 6, 1536, and we just passed the anniversary this month, Tyndale emerged from the castle, was paraded through the southern gate of the town where his execution stake waited for him. Two beams would have been raised in the shape of a cross, and hanging from the top of the central beam, they had a strong iron chain. Brushwood, straw, logs bundled and piled together at the base of the structure. Massive crowd gathered around for the execution, Tyndale proceeded to the cross, and the guards bound his feet to the bottom of the cross and fastened the chain around his neck. The wood was rearranged. Gunpowder was sprinkled liberally in the brush. 
And the executioner waited for the signal. And it was likely at this moment that Tyndale cried out, and these are his final words, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Sounds like somebody else. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. The general gave the executioner the signal and the crowd watched the iron noose strangle Tyndale to death. Then the general grabbed the lighted torch, handed it to the executioner, and Tyndale's corpse would have been exploded by the gunpowder. The rest of his remains slowly burned away. But in the same year that Tyndale gave his life, a complete Bible began to circulate in England, which was the work of Coverdale, one of his friends from Oxford and Cambridge. The second translation in English circulated in 1537, and as a result of John Rogers' work, less than a year after the death of Tyndale, Thomas Cranmer and Oliver Cromwell persuaded King Henry VIII to approve the publication of an official English Bible. And the king issued that a copy of the Bible in English and Latin should be placed in every church in England. And in 1539, a revised Coverdale Bible, known as the Great Bible, received popular reception. Tyndale finally was able to to see his, his dream, or his dream was finally realized, He wasn't there to realize it, wasn't there to know about it, but the Lord finally got the the word of God into the hands of the people of God, which is all that Tyndale ever wanted. And it's because of of his work that many people came to know the Savior. Today, if you uh, read your Bibles, it's kind of interesting, I found this this fact that 90% of the King James Bible is actually Tyndale. 85% of the Pentateuch in the King James Bible is actually Tyndale. 50 scholars got together to create the King James Bible, and over 90% of the New Testament and over 85% of the Pentateuch, they couldn't improve upon. 50 scholars couldn't improve upon one man and the work that he was able to do. And it's because of his work in large part that we do have the Bible in our English language today. So if you open up your Bible and you read the the words, let there be light, you can thank God that there was a Tyndale. (laughs) If you open up your Bible and you read the words, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, you can thank God that there was a Tyndale. If you open up your Bible and you read the, the words that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you can thank God that there was a Tyndale. And this is something that we can celebrate today that God has allowed his truth to prevail. And his truth is what restores our soul. His truth is what makes wise the simple. His truth is what rejoices the heart. His truth is what enlightens the eyes. His truth is what warns God's servant. And his truth is what brings great reward. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had. And uh, we thank you for uh, just this examination of a life. And uh, Father, we know that uh, these are uh, things that we can give you praise for, that you're the God of of history. You're the God of the world. You're not only God of our salvation, but you're the the God of of all life, Lord. All of history is underneath your control. And Father, we do thank you for uh, what you've done in history to bring the word of God to us, to bring our salvation to us. And uh, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in, in our lives and that there would be Tyndales of our day 
Uh, Father, that uh, we would continue to hold up the the word of God because um, it is sufficient. It's what we need, and it's what brings the hope of eternal life. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.